Hello, folks. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high-performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike, or run. It has got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits, and so much more. If these are areas you'd like to improve upon, we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a couple of clients, and Beth, my wife, who's a certified life coach, also has some availability. So, depending on what you're looking to focus on, we have you covered. You can find contact details in the show notes below. All right, let's talk about today's show. So as you know, I'm a big advocate of the benefits of strength training for triathletes, which is why I love chatting with strength coaches on this podcast. Today's guest, Matt Pendola, works closely with another recent guest, Bobby McGee. Actually, it was Bobby that recommended Matt. And they collaborate on their run technique program called Runform. Matt also has his own hustle called the Pendola Project, which is focused around helping endurance athletes, mostly triathletes now, build effective strength for their triathlon performance. Among his many clients is Ben Canute, whom he mentions regularly in the conversation and talks about the training that they do together. I've never chatted before with Matt, but as he says, we could be brothers from another mother. We had so much in common that it was difficult for us not to get sidetracked about other topics, but fortunately we did stay on track throughout chatting about his coaching philosophy and his values key areas for triathletes to build strength why you only need around 20 minutes for each strength workout and the benefits of using resistance bands as always i learned a lot from matt and i hope you do too and that you're able to find at least one useful nugget of information so let's cut the chit chat and hear from matt welcome to the show matt pendola Yes, sir. It's glad I'm glad to be on today and exciting to talk to you, Simon. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while, so honored to be on, sir. Wow. I'm honored that you listen to my podcast. That's great. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, a lot of my trail runs, I go out and I find a good podcast and yours is a regular for sure. Uh, of course, Bobby's been on a couple times now. So uh, Bobby McGee and myself have worked together for the last 10 years or so. So he's been singing your praises. He turned me on to your podcast. And yeah, I am a loyal fan now as well. That's great. Well, we've, uh, as you said, we've had Bobby on a couple of times and we'll we'll point folks back at the podcast that Bobby and I have done. Of course, you and Bobby do a lot of work together. We're going to talk about that a bit later. But Matt, um, you're a man after my own heart. You're a strength coach. Um, you, you work in the sort of triathlon space. So I feel like we're kindred spirits. But I'd like to get a bit of an understanding as to to how you got to this point in your life. You know, did you did you start off in another sport? Were you were you a, a were you an enthusiastic runner that realizes you need to fix your own body and got interested that way? How, how did how did you get here? <laughs> I think it started with Rocky. I was watching Rocky as a kid with my dad and oh, yeah. he was running and running and then running up those stairs. And, uh, I just, something hit there, I think. And I started running around the block and <laughs> I never really got to, uh, being a very, uh, proficient boxer. I, I actually took boxing for a few years. So I guess I would say I'm better than mediocre, but really my passion was just keep running, keep running. And, uh, although I was, uh, just a kid at the time in elementary school, I remember I went, I ran to the beach one day 
and my uncle Frankie was at, it was a public beach and he walks up to me kind of stunned and he said, uh, Matt, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I, I ran here and he just, his jaw just dropped and he was a marathoner himself. He was uh, a guy I really looked up to. And so he just, from that point on, really encouraged me, but turned out that that was about a seven mile run from my house. And not to say that as a kid, I should have been running that long, but I just loved it. And so that's where it kind of started for me. And I did realize that I had some ability in the sport. And to be honest, other sports, um, I tried baseball. I was a pitcher. I was, I was okay. I was okay. A lot of things, but it was running that I just was really, really passionate about. And from a very young age. So I do feel like we kind of find the sport and uh, it brings back a lot of confidence in in my upbringing and what I was able to overcome. I have ADD, for example, which back then when I was in elementary uh, school, it wasn't really understood. Right. No. And so I had a lot of self-confidence issues and I thought there was something wrong with me. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast in itself, but I, I believe that running saved me there. It, and it gave me some special attention. Teachers in high school, for example, would say, Oh, you know, I, I heard you won that race and congratulations, Matt. And I think they respected what I was trying to do and they wanted to keep me on the track team. So oh. they would work with me a little bit more so that I could get at least a C and, and, uh, and stay on the team. So teachers you know help me out with that kind of stuff you you as well simon i think that when i was at school i was always on detention for talking i never shut up which is probably why podcasts are a good thing for me to do um i was uh, i was always running around when i was at junior school the the year, the year system's a little bit different over here but when i was when i was 9 or 10 i used to run from my house to school which was probably about 800 meters say uh, with my football, my soccer ball under my arm, and then we'd get to school. And then when all the other kids would arrive, we'd play soccer in the playground until um, until the bell went. And then we'd go and do lessons. And then at break time, I was straight out there, play football, back in, back out at lunchtime, back in, and then back out. And then I'd run home. So, goodness, if I was wearing a Fitbit, I'd have probably done my 10,000 steps a day. And then um, if, if it was a bright evening, you know, and it wasn't raining, I'd go out on my push bike and I'd ride around until it was dark. And then in the holidays, I'd be... I'd be out, and if I came home early, my mum would know want to know whether I was in trouble or what I'd done wrong. Um, yeah, I think if if there had been a um, an ADHD diagnosis back then, I think I would have been prime candidate. But they just, uh, I think my mum probably did say you're hyperactive, Simon. It's a good job you do all this exercise. But it was made more <laughs> ingested rather than rather than a diagnosis. I think. Yeah, and I well, I know we'll talk a lot about what we do uh, to serve athletes today, which is my favorite subject. But to give you an idea, it comes back to Mr. Ellis. His name was Mr. Ellis in high school. I was failing anatomy and physiology, huh? <laughs> and Mr. Ellis he he told me you know, Matt, I think we should have a discussion about what muscles you're using when you run and why you're using them and why it's important that you know how these muscles actually work. So during uh, my free period, he would meet with me and he knew that I had this, this uh, disorder, I guess you would 
say that because he could tell the signs that were there that I did want to pay attention, but that I easily was distracted. So he started to just talk to me on my terms and what uh, mm -hmm. I would be passionate about. And before I knew it, I was passing the class, right? So uh, thanks to teachers like Mr. Ellis, who stepped in, and he was the first person to really teach me about service to others and, and what it meant to him. He he didn't need to spend that time with me, but he did. And I try to do the same. I have spoken to a, a huge number of people who refer to somebody like that back in their school years that was almost their savior, that was the person that saved them from going off the the wrong side of the, you know, the tracks and recognize that they needed a little bit extra and a bit more respect, just a bit more thought, a bit more space, a bit more tuition on their own terms, like you referenced there. Even Alistair Brownlee talks about how at school, the teachers recognized that, you know, he was mature enough to be able to go out of the school grounds and run at lunchtime, whereas all the other kids were, you know, you, you weren't allowed off school property. And he he's talked about in his book about how, how those teachers at school were part of the reason uh, that shaped his upbringing that made him, you know, the double Olympic gold medalist that he is. Um, you know, and there, there were other people in there as well, but I, you know, teachers get such a bad press sometimes, don't they? But there's nearly always one or two that, that, that are saviors for certain, for, for certain children. And I, I think we should, we should recognize that as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I think you're right there. Teachers don't get enough praise, but there are some that really make all the difference. And for mm -hmm. me, that was certainly Mr. Ellis. I wouldn't be sitting here if if it wasn't for him. I'm sure of that. I, I grew up in a place called Brick City in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and it was rough. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of hope, quite honestly, and even within our school system, there wasn't a lot of people shining. And uh, he did everything he could to help uh, to over deliver, really, uh, as a teacher and to help kids get beyond uh, that circumstance, if you will. So uh, I guess then once you realized that you had this, but now you understood what was making you um, be the runner that you were. Did you then go on to um, to a further education college and study biology or physics or anatomy or something? Yeah, believe it or not, I I uh, ended up studying fire science. I started off as a fire uh, guy. I was in um, wildland fire actually with um, the Flagstaff Hotshots. So that's a special division in wildland fire. And uh, I mean, I guess I'll back it up a little bit. I I was in the army and um, I ended up uh, running, but I had a lot of difficulty. I ran too many miles as a high school athlete. And so I was suffering the consequences of that. We'll talk a lot more about uh, mm. my feelings on that now. But uh, when I was 15, I ran 1447 5K and I just really dove in deep at that point, thinking that was my way out of, you know, government housing. And and for me, initially, it was just, I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm going to get out of here. And uh, I just dove in too deep, I think. So with the Army, I had some shining uh, moments, for sure, with uh, with my running. But it was really after that, I was in the National Civilian Community Corps, which is kind of a bit like the Peace Corps, but within the United States. Mm -hmm. And I got an opportunity to work for uh, Flagstaff Fire Department with Jim Wheeler. He 
was the fire marshal there and he really took me under his wing. So when I got out of the NCCC, he gave me an opportunity, which was very rare and I was very grateful. And quickly after that a guy named Paul Musser, he was the crew boss, old salty from Flagstaff hot shots, the best of the best. And I just recognized that right away that if I really want to push myself and see what I can do, that's the guy I need to work with. And so I was with the Flagstaff hot shots for a few years, became a full-time per permanent, uh, was in fire science because I thought that was going to be my full-time career. Mm. And I started actually, well, there was a fitness test they give the hot shots. Now, I didn't really know what I was doing yet, but I was um, like, I set the record for it at the time. And so Paul just said, Hey, do you want to start training the crew, you know, fitness wise? Okay. And I did, but what the forest service did also is they gave me uh, time and also support to start getting certification, start getting education there. And at a certain point I realized that I wasn't going to continue with hot shotting. I was a sawyer. And so I was cutting a tree down and it's, you know, as hot shots, we would go out in the middle of nowhere out in the mountains, oftentimes where it's just really hard to get to. So on that crew, you got to be a little bit more experienced, a little bit more fit. And so I was cutting this tree down. The tree was on fire about halfway up. It was in the middle of the night. You don't really have a choice. You got to try to get these trees down when they're throwing embers that create spot fires. And so I didn't know the health of the tree, but it broke on me uh, halfway up and part of it hit me. So I ended up um, having L4, L5, S1 um, wow. fracture damage to my spine and my entire left shoulder was torn out. So, you know, basically I um, got out of fire and I was rehabbing and learning a lot huh. about rehab itself. And then I realized like, this is really what I'm interested in the most brought me back to my roots. And so I went to Athletes Performance Institute. I did a four-year mentorship there. So Mark Verstegen, yes, uh, he I've, started that. Oh, yeah. I was, you know yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I've heard of Athletes Performance. I was just about to say, is that, is that Mark Verstegen? So yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that is where I was so fortunate because I'm one of the few people really in the world that have that mentorship, all four phases, mm -hmm. but in part because they didn't continue it after a while, Mark ended up selling uh, Athletes Performance Institute. So I was so fortunate to get in there. Nick Winkleman, I do want to shout out to him. He taught me so much. And there was a lot there that I learned about what they were doing with their training programs. They call it energy system development plans. And Nick was so kind with his time. And I was talking with him even back then about how does this apply to endurance athletes? Because I realized that was my passion, but there wasn't a lot of focus on it with strength coaches. And so I thought this is something I can really make a good impact with. Is Nick Winkleman, did he write about the art of coach, the art and science of coaching? Is that right? That's it. Great book. And I've yeah. uh, been so, preaching that book. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So we, we had a strength coach from Boulder, female strength coach who also, she worked with the fire department there actually is a, uh, giving them their and running their fitness programs. Um, her name escapes me at the moment, but I do remember her. I, I ask all our guests to recommend a book and I remember her recommending that one. So uh, interesting the way you've sort of closed that circle there. 
Yes, that's not Aaron Carson, is it? Uh, no, not Erin. No, um, I've spoken to Erin. Erin, she's been a guest. I'll think of I'll think of the lady's name before we get off the call. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, you uh, you you found your passion now. You're able to marry your two passions. Um, tell me how you got started with runners and triathletes. Then was 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 that straight off the bat, or did you sort of end up moving into that um, a bit later on? No, you know. Um... I believe in being transparent. So I'll, I'll be honest with you. I had a rough period. My, my mother, she, uh, she passed away early from cancer and it was a really rough period. And so really all, uh, the money that, uh, I had saved up hot shotting and things like that kind of went towards that. And then, uh, realizing that life is short and mm -hmm. my mother was, uh, a big influence on me to say, you know, Matt, um, you know, she feel like she felt like she didn't she didn't follow her passion enough. And she she was actually somebody who is so giving and so kind and could help so many people. But she didn't follow through as a dietitian what she wanted to do. And she said, you know, Matt, don't, just don't have the same regrets. And we had a lot of those conversations uh, in those last couple of years, especially. And so I just. um I I decided that I was going to dive all in. So giving up a full-time permanent job is hard to do. And mm -hmm. uh, that was the first transition. The The next was quite honestly, initially, I lived out of the back of my truck and I trained anybody who would say yes. And so general population and uh, again, honored to serve general population as well. The first person who hired me was a guy named Les Nesbitt. He's now 82 and I still train him. Uh, wow. He's amazing. And I learned so much from Les. His, he had three knee replacements. He had uh, shoulder surgery. He had two heart attacks when I met him. Wow. So I thought, to be honest with you, I got my start like most trainers at a, at a big box gym and it was more about the risk taking on somebody like him. So nobody really wanted to take him on. And I, when I took him on, I, I told him, Les, I don't know, but I will find out. I just kept saying that over and over again. And, yeah. and we developed a very quick trust. And over time, things just started to really evolve. And because of those things that I was reading and researching, Every day, it seemed like I had two, three hours of research to do before I was ready for that next session with Les. And he was my only client at first, right? And so what I ended up uh, doing is deciding that if I was really going to go all in, that I had to just start to give as much time as possible to athletes. And so I just started to show up at a track and I would say, hey, anybody who wants to come, I'm coaching. And so I slowly started to build a group. And over time, I would, I had about 30 people showing up, um, it was all free. And so that was good for them. And we would do lots of different things. But uh, I just wanted to get people out there and moving for now, again, general population, I wasn't as interested in just elite performance. Um, you know, so that is something I started with. I well, firstly, I recognize, you know, the the situation with your mother and I recognize how sort of life changing things like that can 
lead to just a, a you know a, it's a catalyst for change, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that gives us the final push that we need when we've been umming and ahhing about whether we need to do something. And that's happened to me a couple of times, realising that life's too short and you don't want to have any regrets when you get to the end of it. And so do it now and make sure there are no regrets. So I, I recognise that. And that's that's been a common theme with, with podcast guests. Um, another common theme, and I, I love the fact that when, when I speak to folks like you and Bobby and, and you know some of our other guests who are leaders and flag bearers in their particular niche the same themes keep coming up which is comforting for for listeners as well because it means that they know we're not bullshitting because there's a consensus amongst coaches is this this idea that I don't know and there's a there's a, an English guy who, who's in Seattle who's a, a doctor but he does a lot of stuff in the sort of high level conditioning for athletes and he he says you know if you if a if a coach doesn't say I don't know more than anything else then they're bullshitting you um and it's because people don't have the answers, but what they should do is follow that up with, but I will get the answer. And so you're, you're sort of living that one. And then I love that whole concept about going all in. You know, it's like being pregnant. You either you are or you aren't. And um, I, I'd imagine somebody's going to take me to task about that now, but hey. Um, but, but you, you know, it's, it's, an, it's binary, isn't it? You're either in it or you're not in it. You can't be sort of half in. And... Um, so yeah, three three main points. I love love all of those and uh, different stories attached to each of them, but still similar themes. Um, yeah, I know, and you know, Simon, I feel like you and I are are uh, brothers from another mother. The more <laughs> we're talking here, <laughs> so it's it's really fun. I love podcasting. By the way, we do have a podcast called Run Form Bobby McGee and myself. So, um, you know, shamelessly, if anyone wants to ever give that a listen, but uh, the thing I love is. I end up talking to people like you that I would never get the opportunity to talk to and learn. Yeah, from. likewise. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no. So, um, just I love the fact that what I learned from really the icons to me. Um, so I already mentioned a couple of them, and they would say that to me all the time: "Is Matt, if you don't know, say you don't know. People will trust you more." So I uh-huh. have to say, I climb the backs of giants and. I, I don't know if I would have necessarily had that that mindset had I not learned that initially from yeah. these amazing coaches and, and physios that I had the opportunity to work with first. Well, and I, you know, I'm turning sixty next year, and I'm, I'm not I'm not hanging up my stopwatch yet or my my coaching notebook, but I feel as I'm, you know, in the sort of thirty odd years into this coaching journey that. There are so many people just like you that have been gracious enough to share their wisdom and knowledge that they've acquired. There's, they've not been sort of secretive or or um, protective of that because they've recognised that other people have helped them. They, they've shared that knowledge with me. I've had, uh, you know, amazing folks come on and be guests on the podcast that have just talked openly about what they've done and how they've got to what, where, they, where they are. Um, and part of the podcasting project is, one, it's it's – it's my own version of an MBA. You know, if I if I had to pay to speak to all you amazing folks, it would have cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I can invite you onto a podcast and selfishly have you to myself for a couple of hours and pick your brains and then share it with other people. And but, but I'm also happy to go on a podcast if I'm invited and, uh, you know, and, and, and give my principles and philosophies about stuff because – Whilst I've shaped my philosophies, they've they've also been shaped for me by the other people that have helped me. And I feel like 
we're only the custodians of this knowledge, aren't we? And there's another generation of coaches coming after us. And it's incumbent upon us now as the custodians to then pass that knowledge on to them and for them to sort of be in possession of it until they decide how they're going to move it on. That's right. Yeah. And I have to always, of course, mention people like Bobby have been so giving of his knowledge. There's no possible way I would be as effective as a strength coach that I hope to be without him sharing what he knows about run form or about what he's experienced with, you know, both of the, really the, the physiology of the sports. Um, you Uh need to know those things, even if you're not the one programming that. Right. And, and of course the, uh, the kinetics. And so those are where these things marry so well. And Bobby says one plus one equals 11. And there's this old (laughs) Clydesdale story that I hope listeners uh, would appreciate this. I think it's worth the story, but a a Clydesdale can pull, I believe it's 4,000 pounds by itself, which is amazing. But you get two working together and it's not 8,000 pounds. They're pulling more like uh, 11, 12, 13,000 pounds. But you had two Clydesdales that worked together. They were brothers, I believe, and they worked together their entire life. And together they pulled uh, some, I think it was 54,000 pounds. So that's the one plus one equals 11. And that, that's sort of like the principle of muscles working together, isn't it? You know, when, um, when you explain to folks how they suddenly get stronger within the first two or three weeks of a program, but they're like, well, my, my, my biceps aren't any bigger or my legs aren't any bigger, but how come I'm lifting more weight? It's that whole principle of synchronization of muscle fibers working together. And I, I use an example of, you know, if you went and got random eight, six, six random people off the street to help you push your car off the street into the parking lot, you'd sort of say, right, let's push. And some people would be looking at the phone and other people would be tying the shoelaces and one person would be busting the gut. So then you try and get them to work as a team and eventually you get all six of them pushing together and to, and, and then you can move the car. But it, but it's the act of training those individuals to work as six as a unit that, that gives the added strength. And so that, that, that very similar principle to the Clydesdale horses there is, you know, what you can do when you're all working in perfect harmony. Absolutely. And uh, I know we'll talk about this a little bit too, but it brings to mind, I've been working a lot with, um, well, Ben Canute is the athlete that uh, I would probably refer to in this podcast the most about what I'm really driving my, uh, my passion towards with Ironman and the long distance triathlon. But uh, Ben and I have been working together for two and a half years now. But again, without uh, his head coach, Jim, who's Jim Vance um, and Bobby and myself working together with Ben and the four of us meet to come up with strategies. At least uh, we have a meeting once a month, I would say, or every six weeks or so at the at the least. And coming up with those strategies together and hearing what each has to say, but mainly what Ben has to say mm-hmm. about what he is experiencing, both the objectives and the subjectives married together with four minds working together. And that's been brilliant. Let's let's start to dig in a little bit deeper now then, Matt. Now we've got a, hit, a sort of an idea of how you've got to this point. Um, I, I'm picking up that your primary focus is helping endurance athletes to run better then. And I think back to the conversation I had with Bobby and also with a gentleman called Shane Benzie, who we talked about off air, but um, who wrote a book, The Lost Art of 
um, The Lost Art of Running. And he talks about being a movement coach, not a run coach. And he says, I'm not bothered about the run splits and how fast they can run a kilometre. I want them to run better because actually when I can help them do that, they run faster. Is, is that your primary aim as well? You're using strength and mobility and fascia to get people into the right postural alignment and like Bobby talks about, the right running shape. And if you can get them to do that and be able to do it unconsciously, then they'll run better anyway. Yeah. Um, so many good points that you just brought up. I'm thinking where to start. So, <laughs> <laughs> so first I want to bring up that the main difference that I found working with, with athletes of especially a age group athlete, let's say they don't have a ton of time and they're already swim, bike, run, let's say minimum is going to be 10 hours a week for long distance. Yeah. Right. And when I say minimum, like if they, uh, if they are going to do even a full distance Ironman, then 10 hours is really probably what we have to put in. So how much of that time am I going to take from them? Right. So I think about connecting the dots first. And if I can, if I have the ability to have them be able to hold their posture longer and let that performance flow out of them, that's a huge win. And so I've kind of understood over time that I have to leave my ego at the door. Mm -hmm. I may have in my mind what an athlete should be able to do for a squat or a deadlift and, and especially single leg to me. But the first thing that I tend to look at is designing a proper protocol with mobility being the priority in the beginning mm -hmm. and then looking at motor control, coordination and control is behind speed. And of course, strength is behind power. So what we want to look at is what's going to help that athlete the most now. And oftentimes it's not six months that I have. I have six weeks. Mm -hmm. All right. So what I'm going to say about Athletes Performance Institute and my conversations with Nick Winkleman is I had to go through Olympic lifts and test for them. And I had to be able to show that I could program them. But athletes, especially endurance athletes, to learn proper Olympic lifting mm -hmm. techniques, I feel like I'm doing a big disservice when I'm trying to fit a, uh, you know, something that is not um, innate to them or something that they don't have much of a gym age for. And I'm trying to, you know, sort of uh, shove that, uh, that square into a round hole. It doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. And so what I've kind of learned over time is that if I can help them connect those dots first with proper protocol, really focusing more on the mobility stability aspects, a lot of times that makes a huge difference from them in the beginning. And then if we're working together over a longer, longer period of time, we get more and more into the, uh, the strength aspect and how much force they can produce. But I feel like that's a journey and I want about two years with that journey with an athlete. So uh, I've been sort of sometimes I feel like cornered in in this respect of things where people think, oh, Matt does band training. Matt does a lot of work that's going to be mobility based, but then that's what Matt does. Well, that's what that's what Matt starts with. And for, for example, Kevin McDowell. Um, he's an athlete that I worked with before the last Olympics. So he was, um, in a position where I felt like 
he was loading dysfunction. And so we say there's no courage in defeated mechanics. So prior program he was on, he was getting strong, but it wasn't transferring well. Mm. And so all I focused on was connecting those dots and it worked really, really well for him. He was sixth at the Olympics uh, overall. And that was, I think, uh, for me, a point that I wanted to bring up because what he did was nothing fancy. It was all about the basics and be able to get a, a lot more reactive instead of being proactive. So in learning stages, what I'm really looking at is by the time he got to the Olympics, we want it to be that unconscious competence and to be able to develop that with all these different aspect, aspects of strength it was going to be too much in a short period of time. So what I focused on is what will uh, be the priority model here and work the best in this time period that we have without interrupting the training that he needs to do to be ready on the day. It's it's really interesting. Um, we talk about mobility first there. I, I had a, a mentor called Sarah Pitts. She was really into mobility. When, when, when she first came to work at our clinic, we had a physiotherapy clinic with a gym attached to the side uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. I was working with uh, team sports athletes. And so we did teach them how to do power cleans and deadlifts and things because we, we needed them to build some size, some of them, as well as um, the endurance. And But, but slow, t- totally different kettle of fish. Um, and, and I was engaged in that and lifting and thinking, you know, if I've got to get strong and I've got to do these lifts. And she said, you know, Simon, you need more mobility. And I'm like, yeah, but we need strength. And she said, yeah, but if you've got a muscle that's not working through its full range of motion, there's no point in making it stronger in a, short, in a smaller range of motion. You might as well use the strength you've got and increase your range of motion because that's going to be better for you athletically. Um, and, it, and it took me a long time of, of discussing and there were the, the heated discussions between us. And um, and then and then I had a bike crash and and when I was when I was getting the rehab from my broken ribs and my broken collarbone, the physios were saying, "Well, you're a bit limited for movement in your upper back, Simon, and that's that's sort of stopping the counter rotation when you're running, and that's your hips are doing more work, and that's why you've got an Achilles problem, and you need more mobility." And slowly the penny dropped, um, and that almost goes back to Tudor Bumper's periodization model, isn't it? For developing strength, is mobility first, and then stability, and then you add the, the sort of that the, um, the core strength on and and you work in that spiral going out from the central body out out towards the limbs. Um, so right. so so when most people start strength training, they start at the end and then work back when they realise there's weaknesses. Uh, but, but but when they've got somebody like you on their side, they start with with the first bit and then it's much easier to build on from there. Yeah, and I want to be clear about something here because again misconceptions. But I was talking <laughs> to an athlete just this week that I started to work with and. She was saying, well, I've seen Ben's Instagram and I'm afraid that all we're going to be doing is mobility or that we're going to be working with bands all the time. And I I feel like I really need to get that force production. And what I said was, first of all, two and a half years in, Ben actually is doing some really complex patterns that we took two years to build on. And so now what he's doing there, you don't necessarily see that on Instagram because we've specifically talked about, I don't want everybody just jumping on these movements. Mm -hmm. I feel like we have a responsibility as coaches. And even though I I do have products that I need to sell and things like that, 
Uh, ben, I don't want the bells and whistles on there. If people are going to try what you're putting on Instagram, I want them to be able to do it and safely. So he only really puts the basics on there. But at this point, he's he's doing some really uh, bells and whistles stuff, and it's a lot of fun, right? But with that athlete I was just talking about, what I learned really quickly in the assessments is that she has quite a good gym age. And so mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be long at all before we are loading up properly, although there's a few things that I wanted to take care of first connecting those dots. But uh, so I it the priority model has to be based off of that athlete's experience, too. So there are some athletes who have proficient lifting patterns from years of developing it. I'm certainly not going to uh, slow that down because of my own uh, ideas on priority model. Here's a question for you, Matt. Um, some, some folks come to triathlon having had a background in team sports, which usually means they've got good hand-eye coordination and good multi-directional movement skills. And, and um, I'm thinking people like, um, Marinda Carfrey, Craig Alexander. Ben Canute looks like a very compact individual. I, I don't know Ben's history, but when I look at him physically, he, he's got the same physical compactness that you might that, um, that Marinda and Craig might have. Um, and then you look at some other athletes who have come from a purely endurance background and probably, you know, when we go back to when we're talking about our school days, probably end up as endurance athletes because they're not very good at team sports because they don't have the hand-eye coordination and because they're a bit awkward at changing direction quickly and, and all of that. Do, do you find that um, those two categories, um, the former category of the team athletes and the compact athletes are, be, are able to pick up the movement patterns and skills much quicker? Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point you brought up. And of course there are other factors to consider, um, sometimes that person was say in volleyball and they were an outside hitter and they absolutely destroyed their shoulder in mm -hmm. high school. And so we still need to look at those mobility aspects first for the shoulder. And oftentimes actually in that case, it's less about the mobility of the shoulder and more about the stability, for example. So mm -hmm. I'll focus in on that and I'll choose lifts where we can even load heavy with without, um, without doing any further damage there, but while we are following a protocol for shoulder stability, for example, right? But so many good points you brought up. So the other thing I would think about here, Simon, is, okay, so I have an athlete that was, she played for UConn basketball, and she actually also set the world record in the high jump at 15. And she happened to be from Reno. So you have one or two of these athletes walk mm. in your facility in your entire lifetime. The, the the first time she walked in, I I said, oh my gosh, this is somebody going to the Olympics if if I can if I can do anything to to help her and not get in her way, I think she's going, right? And so uh, her name's Gabby Williams, and she actually was in the last Olympics. Um, I I've co I coached her for uh, well over a decade, and in basketball, although she played for Paris, she was a dual citizen, so um, so she did medal as well. But she had exceptionally long femurs, right? So what I'm looking at there is. Yes, she needs to be able to create a lot of force. So we have to lift heavy in specific uh, areas. But the Bulgarian, for example, the Bulgarian squat was an area that we really 
we found a way to get quite heavy with that lift, but it worked so much better for her femur length as opposed to doing the bilateral work. So when she went to Yukon and they started to really load her up in bilateral patterns, she actually lost six inches on her vertical that first year. Now, thankfully, her strength coach was really receptive and open to what she had done in the past. We talked Gabby spent the summer with me. We got that six inch. We actually got uh, an additional uh, inch on her vertical. So seven inches by the time she came back. And then she followed a protocol that was more designed around her mm -hmm. anthropometry. Um, and then finally, I would say like me, for example, <clears throat> my torso is actually fairly long. I would, ironically, I never really learned proficient swimming patterns, but I'd probably make a better swimmer than a runner. Right. But, um, I had a late growth spurt. So when I was, I really grew the most between I'd say 18 and 21, but mainly through the torso. So I had to really double down on core work. Right. And so again, what is heavy? So I'll finish with this point, but for me, heavy and what's going to benefit me the most was not so much my deadlift all right but it was more doing a pull-up with a foam roll between my thighs squeezing on that foam roll while i show my butt in more of that posterior pelvic tilt and then doing a strict pull-up now what that did for me was primarily challenged my core if you will and and I'm saying like in a movement like that, that is heavy. That is heavy. It took me a couple of years to get to the point where I could do a pull-up that way for, uh, well, I got to 28 pull-ups. Now, I think once you get to that number, uh, especially like 30 is my cutoff, then you have to start to, to add weight even to the movement. But I was strong enough at that point. I didn't need to continue to add weight. I just needed to maintain. So, you know, that's just an example of the difference. I think in when you say heavy for Gabby, yeah, it was a, uh, heavy Bulgarian was really effective for, for her with long femurs. For me, it was a heavy pull-up that helped me the most, if if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it goes back to a post that I wrote today, actually, about, uh, you know, the, the way coaches say, well, it depends, because somebody will ask you, well, what, what sort of program do I need to follow? It depends, because everyone's an individual, and that's our first principle of coaching, is that we're dealing with individuals, not, not um, you know, not, not identical items and so everything has to be programmed differently and there are so many there are so many elements to throw in the mix so that whole point about team sports versus endurance is, is just one aspect of um those differences and uh, and then there are all those other things so we we can't we can have principles as coaches that we work to and philosophies and values but i guess one of those values well one of those philosophies is that we have to start with work with the individual so yes. we don't have the you have the Pendola project, but you don't you don't force people to take on the Pendola project. The Pendola project bends to the individual that walks through the door. Right, right. And you know, I I don't like sales pitches, but I, I will say that I didn't just put out a product and sell it off of the success of the gold medalists that I've worked with. Right. It was, it was really a passion project because I knew that most people that would buy the program are going to be of a performance mindset, not necessarily elite athletes, but of a performance mindset. So if you bear with me here, the difference between 
elites and somebody who's just really wanting to challenge themselves by doing their first 70.3, for example, but having that performance mindset, I, I, I don't want to just get through it. I want to do it to the best of my ability. That means we have to, as Bobby would say, we have to kind of shake the rust off. So you're performing optimally for you, the way your body mm -hmm. moved when you were seven and playing hopscotch and, uh, you know, sprinting down, uh, to, to get to first base before you're out, right? Those kind of things are what we want to get back as much as possible, that restorative, uh, kind of phase. And, um, what I look at there anyway, Simon is if you have somebody again, with the priority model, who runs really, really well off of the bike. Well, we know in Ironman that you, the bike is a huge priority. So when I designed uh, our programs, even with run form, Bobby and I were very careful to make sure that the movements crossed over to swim, bike, run, mm -hmm. because we know that the majority of people, it's not just for the run. They need to pay attention to getting those connected dots for the bike and the swim as well. So we've had people say, yeah, um, I did this program and I was able to go from say, you know, 46, 54 on my bike, right. To, uh, 50, 50 after, uh, following the, uh, the protocol and by doing the movement patterns. And so those are things that we always kept in mind developing these programs too. When you say 46, 54, um, and then going to 50, 50, you're talking about the imbalance of power between right leg and left leg as measured by the power meter. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, uh, you know, they're just obviously numbers and, but we, we do like to see that the athlete gets a win. And in the beginning, uh, we do have movement improvement, which is on the Pandola project website. It's absolutely free. And I developed that as well. I'm an LMT as well. So over the years, I had to get my LMT license so I could work in PT clinics and get that experience and working with people there. And I designed a lot of this off of that experience, looking at tests and retests. So we had these set points that we could look and see, okay, if we have starting with mobility, if we have mobility here and the ankle is the most obvious one, right? So if you're um, in a half kneeling position, one of our tests that we give is for that ankle mobility. And we're looking at the ability to be able to get that knee to touch the wall with your big toe, at least three inches away from the wall. Okay. So one side, maybe you get three inches, the other side, maybe you're getting, uh, say one, one and a half inches, two inches, something like that. That becomes a priority to get three and three before we start to load up these patterns more. And so we start with that principle first, but what's beautiful about that is it's an easy set point to just remeasure and mark every say 10 days is what I like to look at in general. So if you've been doing your protocol for the ankle mobility and in our program, by the way, it's not just the test we give, we actually give all the movements that will improve the test. So what I say is that this is the protocol that I would suggest you do every day, because at first, when you work on this, it's going to maybe have a, it's going to be an aid for you for about four hours or so initially, right? So that ankle mobility is better after doing that protocol. 
and then you go out for your run or your bike, those things. But the next day, we need to do it again. If we miss a day, that's okay. But if we miss two, then we need to redo a few is what I say, which means that if let's say you've been doing your protocol for four days and then you miss two days, right? To me, you're back to about day two. Okay. So um, I really like people to start off with protocol, doing it every day. And of course, I always take off at least a day, but say six days out of the week, that would be optimal with a minimum of four. And if we're doing that every day, roughly how long is it going to take? Once once we're comfortable with all the movements and we're not having to keep referring back to the instruction leaflet or yeah. the video or the video. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good question because when I first came out with the uh, movement improvement, my first version was 10 movements <laughs> and 10 tests. And then you can you can imagine too many movements to have to try to do. So I redesigned it and we have five main tests. And then what we suggest is that you start off by really understanding the first video and doing that. And even if it's just that movement, and we tell you eight to 12 minutes a day. So I've timed it out that once you understand the movements and you've watched the videos, then it will not take you more than uh, really 10 minutes. But we say um, if we just know from experience that if somebody has 12 minutes or less of protocol, they're more likely to do it every day. So that's what I stuck with is that uh, 12 minute principle. Yeah. Okay. And so is is the movement improvement um, program, that's something you can sign up for. I think you can do a mobility assessment through your website, right? And then Mm -hmm. you can sign up and then do they get the movement improvement program as a result of that? Yep. Yep. It's all free. (laughs) And, um, and honestly, something that I, it took um, several years, a few years of designing that. I do have to mention John Hodges. He owns a few uh, PT clinics here in Reno, and he was a uh, a big factor in me uh, I, learning these principles. And so he taught me a lot of this. And then I've been using these movement improvement assessments for about 10 years now. They haven't really changed. I like to stick with really the things that will give you the biggest bang for your buck, moving the biggest boulders first. So uh, sometimes people ask me, well, what about this movement? What about that? And say, yeah, that's fantastic. And that's going to be something you can progress through down the line. But these are the movements that I have seen and tested athletes with, and we see a much quicker, um, you know, learning curve. And so that's, that's the movements I chose. You know, Matt, I, I'm just thinking there, there's, there's obviously this Gray Cook's functional movement screen patterns. And then I, I interviewed Kelly Starrett and he's got his supple leopard stuff and the ready state. And um, and then I speak to folks who say, well, what about this yoga and what about that Pilates? And then I come back to them in six months time and I'll say, well, so what did you go with? Well, you know, I'm not I'm not sure where the supple leopard's better than, than this. And I might use it, it reminds I've told this story many times on the podcast. So some listeners will be like, well, rolling their eyes now. But I was at, I was at a, a presentation and a nutritionist was asked by somebody whether it was better to eat steamed spinach or boiled spinach. And he asked the person, well, how much spinach are you eating now? And they said, no, well, I'm not currently eating spinach. And he said, well, just start eating spinach first and then make your mind up. And it's the same for this, really. It's like eat movement improvement right i'll put the link on the podcast show notes so people can go and check that out that might not suit you but if you want to go to your local hot yoga clinic 
and, and you love that, then go there, but just do some movement every day. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because if it's like anything else, right? Like um, being on a diet, right? I, I was fortunate to work with um, Rob Wolf uh, uh-huh. and, and uh, so I was his very, not for a long period of time, but I was his strength coach while he was in Reno and learned a lot from him as well. But the main thing, what I would notice is that people would buy his book and they would go really extreme, right? And, mm-hmm. and they treat it like a diet. And I would say, look, if you can imagine yourself doing this in 10 years, then it's not a diet. And really, it's the same thing with movement improvement or with these principles that if it's something that you will enjoy doing and it's not a chore, then I say uh-huh. that's that's better. So you're right. If if it is a yoga class that you will do and you won't do, uh, you're not into doing, let's say, um, my favorite mobility movements. I'm not going to take offense to that, but do something. I hundred uh, percent agree. And, you know, I would finish with this, with our principles, what we look at is just going from the ground up. And so I, I have designed this with toe yoga as the first movement. Mm-hmm. And we can talk a little bit, like, for example, about the windless mechanism and how that actually is the first step literally and figuratively in elasticity for our running. And so if we don't have that, then it's really tough for us to wind up our arch. And so we tend to have other issues up the chain. And so, you know, ultimately what I want to do is give people the opportunity to even just start with that. Say they are non-optimal in all five tests, just start with the toe yoga. Then once you've evolved that and you've mastered that, and when I say master, by the way, I will never have optimal movement in my left shoulder. I mentioned my tree trauma, I call it, from my hot shouting days. Uh, I, I will never have optimal mobility there in my left shoulder, but it's better for me. It's, opti- it's as optimal as I'm going to get it. And that's what I want people to realize is that the tests are just tests and the numbers are just numbers, but are you improving? Mm-hmm. And once you have that and you say, okay, now I'm going to maintain that, but I'm going to move on to these other things that I need to mm-hmm. work on up the chain. And so uh, I want people to have these tools, right? I want them to be able to say, okay, for me, I'm at the point where I will get in mobility for um, my shoulder. And that is a big um, aspect of keeping that mobility as uh-huh. as restored as possible. Peter Atia, you know, that his work is brilliant. And so I'm 50 now, just maintaining the the uh, optimal mobility in my shoulder for me is the goal. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that. I mentioned that, I, I've, you know, I broke my collarbone. It's misshapen here. I've got, you know, this shoulder shortened, the, my left shoulder. Um, I, I get a little bit of pain in there in the rotator cuff because the way the muscles have changed position. So I'm I'm with you on that. You have to find what works for you. Going back to what you were saying about uh, Rob Wolf, and he's the author of the Paleo Diet and um, um, some of those other books. Is and I, and I totally agree. It's, it's exactly the same as t- Dr. Tommy Wood, who I mentioned earlier. Is about finding what works for you. But it, you know, something's got to be sustainable, not just for three months, but. But for but for the rest of your life, and if you and if you're doing something and then you're changing back to what you're doing before, that's that's just that's just a crash diet, isn't it? That is a diet. It's it's not a it's not a lifestyle. Um, 
I can I add one caveat to this? Sure, um, sure. Because I, as we talk, <laughs> um, so I will say that there may come to a point though where I really want people to understand if they're still having the same issues that they were mm. having before, then something does need to change. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah. Right. Um, and so like, we'll take the quadratus umborum. This is a, a great example to me of, so that's QL muscle, that's your hip hiker. Okay. Mm -hmm. But also when they work together, they help to stabilize. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we are doing, let's say yoga and we're doing these long, slow, stretches with that ql what i have found is that it feels really good and it even gets their hips set but then uh, it actually creates some instability for them mm -hmm. and so they run into issues so sometimes an athlete is actually working against themselves without realizing it and that's where you may say okay i need to switch something up mm -hmm. and then that would be where i would say the caveat is is make sure it is working for you if it's not you've got to try uh other you got to try different tools out there's something that i've advocated and um i have my favorite physios come on regularly and we talk about you know achilles health and calf health i think we've got something somebody coming up to talk about shoulder health soon um, and one of the things that are well, the topics that we always come back to is taking a proactive approach about visiting your therapist versus a reactive approach. So, you, you, you know, and I, I do this myself because you know, I'm 10 years on from you and I feel like if I want to keep running and biking and swimming, I need to be healthy. I don't want to lose fitness by missing time because I'm injured. And when I go to see the physio every four to five weeks, she will watch me and she will take me through her standard movement patterns and watch me walking and watch my foot gait and everything else. And then she'll say, right, what have you been doing? Right, I think we need to do a bit more of this. I think we need to do a bit less of that. I think you need to stop doing those things because clearly that's, over. you know, you, you, your glutes are over firing too much and we need to stop that and, and re-pattern this. Um, but that investment of seeing my therapist um, whilst it seems expensive at the time has probably saved me a lot more money because I don't have to go every week to get this fixed or that fixed. Um, but it also it enables me to, to feel good while I'm moving around and keep doing the things that I love without feeling like I'm, I'm uncomfortable because this hurts or that's aching. Yeah, no, absolutely. So <laughs> I, I love, I love the way that you think. And one thing that I was thinking while you're bringing this up is I have had a lot of customer service um, calls and um, feedback when it comes to run form. And because we are designing these programs with swim, bike and run in mind, mm -hmm. then sometimes what it is that we will see is occasionally, you know, my, my lower back is still bothering me, right? And so what I say is, look, make the investment to to see a physio if possible a physio who does triathlon that's even better to be right but i have mm -hmm. a local physio that i use kevin wright and he's just amazing it's a small world the first athlete that i ever um was uh, privileged enough to uh to have in the uh, olympic trials when she was in the pole vault and her name is logan miller and um she ended up marrying kevin and so kevin and her live here in reno now and have a beautiful family and i get to work with kevin on a lot of these principles he's a he's a remarkable uh physio who got um a lot of his 
learning curve with uh, in Oregon with some some really good athletes. So he's bringing a lot of that to the table. But the point is, sometimes you do need to just make that time investment with a good uh, physio or somebody who really has the knowledge for you there. And that hands-on approach makes all the difference. So what I say is, yeah, initially, if you hire somebody like uh, Kevin or myself in person and yeah, that's that is going to be a real investment time-wise and financially. But how much would you be spending in the long term on your healthcare? That's it's a much cheaper bill to just uh, you know pay that expert now, right? So well, that, I encourage that. That's, that uh, brings me around to one of my favorite fa- fa- phrases, which is "pay now or pay later." And if and if and if you take the pay later approach is nearly always going to cost you, whether it's time, effort, pain, frustration, it's nearly always going to cost you a lot more if you do it later than if you do it now. Um, Absolutely. And yes. one of the, one of the things that um, we do when folks uh, join, when athletes join me is I try to get them to make a journey up to Leeds to, to come to see the physios because they'll go through a, a full two hour body assessment and go through the movement patterns and identify what's weak, what's tight what's overworking, what's underworking, and that then forms the basis for our mobility program, um, generally prescribed by the physiotherapist to start with, like, okay, I'd like you to start doing some of these little movements, I'd like you to start doing these little exercises. And then we work that into the we work that into the program and we get some videos so that the folks can see what they're supposed to be doing. And it's not just, you know, that a lot of people get confused by movement patterns when they see it written down, don't they? So we do videos. And then rather than me having my standard strength program, we, we do exactly what the physio does and we don't move on to any more strength stuff until they've come back to see the physio and they've sort of ironed out some of those little kinks. And, you know, since I've started doing that, that's really made a massive difference to people's um, consistency with training, I think. And that's what we're all aiming for, isn't it, ultimately, Matt? You know, that's what that's what you and the, the other coaches, the, the program managers that you're working for, is being able to get that athlete to turn up to as many training sessions as possible and execute the session. Yeah, no, and again, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, paralysis through analysis. Is, that's another factor that I'd like to touch on here is you have somebody who's been in chronic pain and this is an issue that's developed over time. And you're really talking about potentially doing, say, 30,000 repetitions mm. in order to <laughs> make some changes there, right? So it's a patience phase, but also with, okay, with run with run form, we have also seen that we have a day, day-to-day where we give our assignments, essentially, right? So day one, you're doing these movements. And day two, we're moving uh, towards uh, these same movements. We're repeating patterns. But then we start to slowly build on those movements. And we don't get into Bobby's uh, specific form drills into month two for a reason, because we need to be patient and we need to allow those dots to connect. So sometimes, and I would actually say oftentimes, the pain does end up going away because we have followed that patience phase. And what we start with is a lot of slow movements because not only are we improving mobility, but the slower we're going, the more stability has to kick in. Mm-hmm. And 
oftentimes when we have those factors combined without even knowing exactly what it was without that professional like Kevin Wright watching your patterns, we are slowly starting to get that QL to stabilize along with the opposite glute med, right? So when we talk about um, a pattern, when we're just in locomotion and we know we can do something like, um, I'm going to bring up the farmer's carry, which is a fantastic movement. Mm -hmm. Love that movement. Right. And that will absolutely work to improve that area. Right. And you talk about working on stability or obliques, right? So that lateral line of your body, right? That frontal plane, we know that that's going to improve stability with athletes. But again, the problem to me is that I've seen plenty of people grab that kettlebell, yeah. all right? And they start walking and they're walking asymmetrically, right? They're, they, they look like a V8 commercial. And we say, well, that's, see, you haven't learned to get that mind to muscle connection yet because you started too quickly with more loaded patterns and uh -huh. dynamic patterns. So it's one of my favorite drills, but I was just talking to an athlete a few weeks ago that her pain got worse doing, doing that. Mm -hmm. And it was programmed for her. And I thought to myself, okay, just taking her through a few quick assessments, I thought to myself, yeah, that's that's a few steps down the line and that's really going to help you. But this is what you have to start off with first. And I actually sent her to Kevin and almost immediately she's, Oh my gosh. I mean, my back already feels so much better. Thank you. But it, it wasn't those uh, principles that were the problem. It's the pace that we're following the principles. Mm. Yeah. And triathletes are, are, are notorious, aren't they? For wanting to run before they can walk. So, uh, <laughs> that we, we're, we're unlike with personal training clients where you're almost trying to having to push them from behind to get stuff done and motivate them it feels like with a lot of endurance athletes you're like holding a holding a spaniel on a lead and stopping it running away <laughs> i love it yeah and we're all that way right i mean to be fair uh, we all yeah. want it now and yeah. and th that's the difference i think again if you look at um performance mindset when i say performance mindset mm -hmm. That person is willing <clears throat> to do the patience phase. Uh, that's that's the beginning of that performance mindset. Doesn't mean they don't want to eventually uh, go faster or that they don't want to even win, right? But we all have to start there. I, I think of it like Miyagi, you know, uh, Karate uh -huh. Kid. Yeah. <laughs> Even though actually that training in the movie was kind of ridiculous, but it's the it's the concept that really works there, right? It's you just get those basics down and that's where you will notice that you're getting not only better prehab for yourself, you can be more consistent in your training, but of course your performance goes up because you're more consistent with your training. So what I really like to keep in mind is with um, and I'll talk about Ben Canute a little bit here, but he was an absolutely wonderful student because when we first started working together, I said, okay, I need 10 days where you're just following this protocol that, we, that we've set up. And to be honest with you, the protocol we set up was just what's on movement improvement. He's Ben Canute, but I just, that doesn't change because he's Ben Canute. And he did it 10 days and he was able to, uh, to be honest with you, he did it both AM and PM, which is possible. Um, but 
he he did that and after 10 days we we saw market improvements and then without me saying a thing he told me he said okay i can tell you uh using stride which i know you and bobby have talked about uh my numbers have already are already getting better and so he was already buying in and then again keeping in mind that then i went to relative strength index testing with him where now we're doing something as simple as a leg lift right where you're um, on doing a side bridge, right. Mm -hmm. And then you're lifting your leg up. Well, a lot of triathletes listening, try this. Okay. Get into that side bridge position, lift your leg up in the air. Now your, your, your foot will, or should be able to come up to the same height as your greater trochanter. So what is that? If you put your thumb by the side of your hip and feel for that bony prominence. That's the level you want to be able to hit. So I just, in the gym, I'll use a rack and I'll put a heavy bar there and that's your marker. I find that marker. And then I don't want your toe to touch that bar. I want your heel to touch that bar with your toe pointed down. Mm -hmm. Okay. So triathletes, uh, especially when they're on the bike and the more arrow they're getting, the more that can be uh, some of the culprit for the TFL, for example, right? So we want to distract that TFL. That's part of those hip flexors. And by turning that toe down, now we're lifting up. Now we're really looking at that sideline stability, okay? And of course, the side butt, if you will, that glute med, other muscles too, but strength. And so uh, how many reps can you get? Well, in my RSI testing, and I've done this for years and years and years, I have a gold standard, a silver standard, a bronze standard. I want you to be able to get to 20 repetitions on each side, and then a max again of 30. Once you can do that, then it's just about maintaining. But that was the next principles we worked on. And with Ben, he doesn't mind me sharing numbers. So I will say in the beginning, he wasn't even on the podium. Right. And more importantly, he was uh, actually on the podium with one side, but not the other. Right. So that is all I focused on in the beginning. And he had um, kind of a Phoenix year that year, quite honestly. And it was, um, you know, it was it was a very positive outcome. And then last year when Ben was second at 70.3, uh, 70.3 Worlds, that was at that point two years and and those principles had built and built and of course leading up to that there's uh there's a lot of trust that the athlete has to have in what uh -huh. you're doing but i told him the whole time like this will keep building this will keep stacking and you're gold now on all of these standards i have i have 12 different standards that we do at we apply at different points of the season and he was pure gold. And I knew even though his season wasn't going so well before that, um, and that had to do with other factors, I think more so, but Jim and Ben and Bobby Knight, we knew his day was coming and we were one of the few ones not surprised on the day of what he did there. But uh, again, that was a two-year process. Yeah, I love that reference to the performance mindset, the Mr. Mayaji thing. It's, it's about process, isn't it? It's about embracing the process and that process is a slow, a slow one. You know, it's, I can't remember which guest it was that said endurance, endurance sports take a while and so does the fitness to build them. You know, they don't, they don't come overnight. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think, um, 
Alan Cousins was the one who said the best athletes are the ones who can embrace monotony and boredom. You know, just doing the same uh, old thing day of day, day after day, and be, but becoming a world class at doing the doing the simple things right. And and uh, yeah. again, s- something that's echoed by so many guests in so many different aspects, whether it's sleeping, whether it's mobility, whether it's um, meditation is if you just practice and get the consistency over a long period of time at doing the the basic things right, that's going to get you about 95% of the way to where you want to be. And all of those other exciting things, which goes back to your Instagram stuff and and sort of highlights about how dangerous Instagram can be in the wrong, in the wrong hands is, that stuff never makes it onto Instagram because it's so damn boring and monotonous, but that's actually the, the secret source behind the athlete's success. Yeah. I honestly believe I'd probably sell more programs if we put what Ben is doing now on there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I wouldn't feel good about it. And I'm not just saying that to sound good on a podcast. Um, it, it, it affects the pocketbook, but we have to do right by our, our the people who are serving and some of those people I'll never get to meet, but I hope to meet. And when I bump into them at, uh, you know, a race and this has happened and they're saying, geez, this has, this has changed things for me in, in big ways. And now I'm teaching it to my daughter. And that's what Brilliant. the legacy is, right? Uh, and that's what I wish I had learned when I was that young athlete piling on the, the, the miles and I was exceeding my capacities without even realizing the damage mm-hmm. I was doing. And now I know, geez, if I was being taught that by my mother, if she had learned it through this program, then, uh, or by a coach who's, I'm now, um, another thing is I'm starting to coach coaches because getting into ITU initially, and again, brilliant, brilliant experience. But for me, I have to pick I'm one person. So I'm looking more towards the long course. And so for ITU, I have a couple of coaches. One, uh, Shannon Clausen, she is working with the athletes out of BAM and also with some of the uh, junior elites and those programs through West Johnson. And then another one with uh, Coach Day at the University of Arizona. That's the first division. Uh, it's a division one program, the first team that they're putting together this year. Uh-huh. And so what I am trying to do effectively is to teach them the coaching principles behind the programs. I give them access to everything that I do and I have, and then they are learning to do that. So instead of me being able to help, you know, one person out now, uh-huh. I get to help entire teams uh-huh. out with, with these coaches, which has also been really, really cool. So it's a time saver for me. It's really effective for them. And I think it's a win-win, right? So I've been pretty excited about that too. It, it doesn't have to give you a warm feeling, doesn't it? When every now and again, an athlete comes up that you've never met and they say, oh, I just, that, that program's amazing, Matt. You know, I tried it. I did less running. I did more strength and mobility and movement patterns and I'm running faster now than ever. And I'm not, I'm never going back to huge volume without having this underpinning um, preparation, you know? You, yes. It, it, yeah. Makes your day. Yeah. So um, you've talked about run form and I know Bobby talked about it a little bit. Give me your elevator pitch for run form. Cause I, I've already spoken. I've spoken. In fact, I had a conversation with a chap the other day who's in my little swap group and he 
came along and told me how he'd improved his PB at 70.3 distance by 26 minutes this year. And he, he outlined what he'd done and it was nothing to do. He'd been doing more training, but I, when I asked him how he'd managed to get more training and he then told me about all these lifestyle and work changes that he'd made to enable him to have the capacity to do more. But he also said, and now I'm signing up for run form. So, uh, and he, and he said, I, I listened to your podcast with Bobby McGee and I thought, mm, that sounds interesting. So that's, that's one down for you. Um, so for anybody who's not familiar with it and has not been to the website and has not listened to Bobby McGee yet, um, give me your quick elevator pitch for Runform, please. Sure, yeah. The main principle that we want to follow with are four different pillars, and I'll explain those. But the main principle is that we are learning to get our compact position, okay? So that's first. And what I mean by that is that if you if you look at our uh, our center right and what is core right and there's so many different explanations of that to begin with but if you if you take your thumb and you put it right to your sternum and your ability just slightly have that arrowhead if you will that sternum being an arrowhead just pointing slightly down and holding that position okay holding our posture letting our performance flow out, okay? It starts with that. So if you imagine that this is a bicycle wheel and the hub is your core, okay? The spokes coming out, they need to be true, all right? And so those spokes are your peripherals. Those are the arms, the legs, that's the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. And mostly what Bobby and I saw going to just, we've done multiple camps together working with thousands of athletes at this point, most of them, their peripherals are moving ahead of their center. Mm -hmm. So those, right, those spokes aren't true. So when we work on these principles and with banded dynamics, for example, why do we use bands? Well, you don't just contract, but you react in band training, mm -hmm. which we really like. Plus for the triathlete, um, you can do this anywhere. Right. So we wanted it where you could do it in the, at the park before you run. And we start off with what we call starting your stack. All right. And the, the band would go under your feet there and loop around your hands. And then what you're doing is you're pulling on one side while you're stabilizing with the other. Mm -hmm. And that is again, an example of how we are stacked because the band's going to actually kind of slightly pull you down into that stack position. And now you're working at that, that shoulder uh, mobility and the stability. So we've seen that even improves for the swim, the overhead position. And even though you're just pulling that wrist up towards your ribs and you're not even going overhead yet, that's on purpose too, because we know that a lot of people overhead work, they're not going to be able to do that just yet. So starting with your stack. Now, with this final thought, I would say that when you have that, that hub working first and the spokes are true, that's what we call in control, ready to roll right? That, that, that wheel is just, uh, spinning optimally, right? It's, and it, that's the way our body is, is, uh, working optimally as well. So, you know, that's kind of the, the pitch there is, uh, compact connected, and that will improve, for example, with run form, your cadence. Okay. Although you could switch that over to the bike for, uh, the, the pedals and the swim for the, 
for the uh, you know the the overhead reach, right? So uh, that's that is essentially what we have designed the program around, and the pillars are basically going to start you off with Bobby's famous dynamic mobility drills, and it's now tying in what you're learning with controlling that center and using those peripherals more effectively. We have loaded mobility, which we start to work on principles that we want you to do post sessions. So for example, a lot of people have heard about Nordic curls, but we don't have Nordic curls in the program. We have hamstring slides. Why? Because after spending years in PT clinic, very few people can even do the Nordic curl to the point where it's really giving them the benefit. Mm -hmm. And so the hamstring slide is the regression to that. And so we, we have that in our program, but we also have the reverse Nordic, which uh, is huge for cycling. If you're getting off the bike and you're working on your reverse Nordic, that is going to really help with your recovery. But I'll get a little bit more in depth here with this is you have that rectus femoris muscle that is not only going to flex your hip, but also extend your knee, right? And it's the only mm -hmm. of the quad complex that does that. Well, it does not get a lot of love in like a lunge, okay? So what we need to do is work on principles where we're going to load that muscle and get it lengthened under load. And so the reverse Nordic is going to do that. So you're actually recovering better from the bike, but you're also getting stronger for the run. So there's uh, in the run phase, when you, you set your knee up, the whole idea is that you beat gravity down. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the better you do that, the more that opposite uh, leg has that momentum, that free speed, if you will. Okay. And so what we tend to see is that people aren't beating gravity down. Gravity is beating them down. Okay. And they're not controlling their shank. Right. So if they're heel, we don't, we don't say if you're a heel striker, that's bad. It's not bad to us at all, but where is that foot striking? Is it too far out from our center of mass? So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, this is just be an example of this, but when I say your shank, just your leg is technically just below your knee, right? And so our ability to control that, so we go back to the hamstring slide. Well, now you are learning to control that with your hamstring. A lot of people mm -hmm. think the hamstring is about the curl. It's more about controlling that shank. So it, that foot goes under us more. But then let's talk about the reverse Nordic and that rec fem. Well, when you're setting your knee up, that initial action is more rec fem. It's not until you get higher that your, your hip flexors really start to take over. So we want to be able to beat gravity down effectively. And again, that Nordic curl is a wonderful way to start to be more proactive so we can be reactive. So just a couple examples of those movements. I'm, I'm thinking of hamstring slides. So you've got to have your hips up in a bridge position first before you can slide your heels back under the body to activate the hamstrings, right? Is it possible to do that with a, with a, with an exercise ball, a Swiss ball? So you, you start out in a bridge position and then you, you actively pull your heels under your body, but you've got to keep the bridge perfect there. You can't let your hips drop. Um, so would, would that give you the same, maybe even more benefits because then you've got the lateral stability as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do use that occasionally and it's uh, a little bit more demand on proprioception, right? Mm -hmm. 
it depends a little bit on the athlete, the size of the ball, those factors. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I tend to find is that when somebody has more of an anterior pelvic tilt, again, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's your anthropometry, it's your kinetics. But if we are, say, overarching, when we get on top of the ball, I tend to see that they really overarch. Uh, as as they get on that ball uh, whereas off of the ground we teach the principles in the program but for one everybody has like at least a kitchen uh floor where they can slide right yeah. and so we did try to think convenience in mind not everybody's going to have a swiss ball around but it's also because w- the way we teach it is how you get set up how you get your uh, back position more optimally for you mm-hmm. and then controlling that slide. So um, the the Swiss ball hamstring curl, I'm not vilifying that whatsoever, but I think that that's not for everybody. And we we tended to go with movements that we knew would help everybody. But what I would say is you can also look forward to in the uh, future programs, what I'm focusing on now is building programs, specifically strength programs with triathlon. So I have an in-season triathlon strength program that's out right now. And I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. And so um, that's built specifically for in-season, but we are working on um, a program that you could start post-season and build up like Ben did. Mm. Um, I'm thinking like most listeners that, uh, you know, I've got all of this swimming to do and I've got all this cycling to do and I've got all this running to do and so where am I going to fit this in and now you're asking me to do all of those uh, um, movement improvement things that's 10 minutes in the morning um, and then I have to do these um, uh, run form things and now the strength program how much of my day am I going to have to devote to this Um, am I am I am I is it better to reduce my running a little bit take the volume out and then replace some of these movement patterns in there to get uh, either the same result or maybe a better result well, you really set me up for a home run there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so that's something that we talk about a lot is believe it or not. And I have, okay, so we have a um, a runner right now we've been working with that was doing um, just about 91 miles in his max volume week for a marathon. And uh, he's an age grouper. He's quite fast. We're His max miles are going to be uh, about 70 miles now and he is getting faster the difference is even though he's going to spend a little bit more time right now focused on mobility and strength he actually doesn't have to spend as much time out there running the extra volume that we know is just on defeated Uh mechanics anyways because we specifically looked at what do you look like at ryan his name is ryan peel but what do you look like under fatigue that's what we really need to get to. And so are those extra miles really serving you? Right. And so I'm not, again, vilifying some people will be able to, if especially professionals, they'll be able to get in that extra mm-hmm. miles, but they also, this is their whole job. So they can get it all in. They don't have a day job, right? Well, Ryan does. So we need to be able to take down some of the volume, but he is getting faster. If, if he's not, if he wasn't getting faster, then we'd say, oh, you're right. But we have yet to be wrong on that one. Um, it's usually that conversation. And the last thing I will say is that the we start off with mobility for a reason where okay eight to 12 minutes a day but then once you've uh followed that and then you 
we suggest after 10 to 20 days max, you, you do need to start with a program. And so what we look at is now the things you've been working on will actually be complemented by starting to work on some loading patterns, right? And so what, uh, in, and even in movement improvement, there are, I should say, there are athlete anchor patterns, I call them like the tippy twist that you do at the end. So you are actually on your feet getting loaded, but it's, it's body weight work and it's some band work, mm -hmm. right? But ultimately the strength work that I give is 20 minutes, um, on average per session, especially in season in the postseason. Uh, it can be up to 40 minutes, but 40 minutes, uh, two times a week on average, and then 20 mm. minutes, two times a week in season on average, really working on main gaining, I call it. So you, you build in that, uh, phase, that initial phase in the postseason, and then you're gaining incrementally, but your body has really adjusted to these patterns, but we don't want to have it to be much more than about 20 minutes because it's just too much time to give. So it's not as much time as people probably think. And we know that if they're consistent with two days a week, then that's going to be um, the best result overall in the long term. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I would say what you have to keep in mind here is when you do have these um, uh, mobility drills that you're working on 10 minutes on the other days, right. Um, that you're not strength training. I mm -hmm. think once you've adjusted to these things, then just getting those in, uh, three or four days a week, because your nervous system has held on to this mobility at this point. And the more you do it, the more you hold on. So that's something that I like to do a few days a week with the strength training. So you can call it an average of two and a half days if you want to. Um, mm. but really what does it come down to? Like, uh, about, um, about 40 minutes in, in season that you're giving for your strength training, and then roughly about 40 minutes that you're giving to your mobility, um, yeah. and, and, uh, motor, motor patterns. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a big fan, um, Matt, and it, it might have felt like I was setting you up there. I probably was, but <laughs> setting you up to give you the answer that I wanted, of course, which is th this stuff works. And actually, if you are willing to risk um, dropping a little bit of run volume and adding a little bit of this stuff in, normally the end result is way much better. And so as a total program, you're getting more bang for your buck, right? But 100%. I, I I just think that with a lot of endurance athletes, they're just so wedded to this. I must run if I'm a runner. I must swim, bike, and run if I'm a triathlete. And that other stuff's superfluous. I I I still think there's a lot of folks out there who haven't got it. You know, I've been writing about this stuff for nearly 30 years, and I'm still feel like I'm having to try and convert a lot of folks. There's it, there's more people engaged in it now, but it's still still like pushing a snowball up a hill. <laughs> It is. And I think it's partially our fault in the industry in, in the sense that when I was at API and I was talking to Nick all those years ago and saying, look, this is going to be really overwhelming for endurance athletes. And he completely agreed with me. Right. And again, it's uh, I think too many principles that have served contact sport athletes like mm -hmm. football. Let's be honest, most of these programs um, are designed by either hypertrophy, right? Just aesthetics and mm -hmm. over athletics. And we're some, for some reason, a lot of us follow those things. And then 
the other side of things, when it is the athletics, you got to remember it was uh, a lot of times rooted with the traditional ball sports. And Mm -hmm. so we've really taken a lot of these principles and said, okay, well, what is actually finally the priority model for a triathlete and a runner? And what I would um, finish on this thought with is just reminding people of what you said earlier, where, yes, we do focus on the run. And that is something that we, well, you're going to win on the run in a triathlon as well. Right. But there are, there are athletes that will say, okay, I've got these principles down my, I have to get faster on the bike and the more elite they are, the more power they have to have on that bike and the more they have to sustain that power. And that's where I would say, okay, you have a couple of choices here. One in the even triathlon strength programming that I have, you can use heavier bands. I mean, you know, people sometimes have this idea that if you're if you're not holding onto a um, a barbell or a dumbbell, that it's tension is tension, right? So you can you can make those bands heavier, and that may work for you. But there may be a point where you really need to load up in different patterns, different variations. And I completely agree with that. And uh, that is why I'm working on putting out those next set of principles. Mm. But I don't believe that everyone necessarily has to get to that. I think the more if you want to win your age group, or if you want to be able to get to the highest elite levels, yeah, you, you've got to be stronger than the average bear around you. And 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 it is different if you're a pure runner. To me, it's more about dynamic trunk control and that postural endurance. If you are a triathlete, you definitely have to be stronger for three different skill sets mm-hmm. and to hold that longer. So, um, you know, marathon runners still have to get stronger to a point to go longer. But what I would say is that it just depends on you and your goals and realizing that if it's working for you right now, I wouldn't really change anything there. But if you're really trying to find some of those variables, I will have people doing run form where I'll say, hey, you know, stick with run form for at least the first 20 days or so where that's what you're focused on doing. But then if you know, we'll take that Bulgarian squat again, you know, that served you well in the past and you have good mechanics for it, then add that in. You know, we're not telling you that you have to only follow Uh what we're asking you to do. And you can even replace that with our um, our knee bend um, uh, DMDs or uh, excuse me, um, uh, banded dynamics that we're giving you. So you can, you can make those adjustments. I've literally sent emails out saying, just replace this with, with the Bulgarian mm-hmm. and you've got it, you know, but again, you have a gym, you have a set up in your garage. Great. We're, we're kind of building this process off of what will serve the most people, but also, um, all they need is, is a uh, gym in a bag and they're all set. Yeah. And they can find the gym in the bag on your site as well, along with the other programs which we will direct folks to. Um, This is for another podcast, Matt, so let's not start on this now, otherwise you'll never get off on that journey of yours. But, um, of course, we talk about performance here. Once you get past a certain age, then we're fighting the ageing process, and so there's a a totally different reason for including strength training. Um, So maybe what I'm going to do is invite you back to talk about that, and we can talk about that for hours then. Absolutely. Uh, You know what? I brought up the 82-year-old that uh, Les Nesbitt, And we are doing a lot of purposeful work on his fast twitch at 82. So we want to keep that Peter Atia again, I do 
promote mm-hmm. what he's saying a hundred percent. And so a lot of those principles there, but I'll just, I'll finish with this thought for everybody. But when we're looking at power for less at 82, I'm really proud of the fact that he can jump rope and get 180 skips in a minute. Now, those of you listening, try that because I've started with elite athletes who get um, less than 120, okay, in a minute. And the reason why that's important uh, too is if you imagine that you have your, your, with your feet on the ground in the jump rope and you are just that stiff pogo, right? One foot, if you look down at the end of your test, one foot is probably going to be ahead of the other. The foot mm-hmm. that's behind is the one you're using more, right? So let's say your right hip, uh, your right side is more dominant. Your left foot is probably going to be ahead of that right. When you talk about a minute, well, that's strength endurance. But what I had less do is working on a uh, a maximum of 20 seconds where he built up to be able to hold uh, 60 uh, revolutions in 20 seconds. Uh And so then, uh, on top of that, we worked on a lactic principles, which means that he's being very explosive. Now we'll talk really about the predominant fast switch part is that, uh, I had him pushing a sled for one for about five seconds. And we built up to the point where he's sprinting at 82 with a sled. Okay. But, uh, and by the way, that was at, uh, 265 pounds, um, where he was able to, to cover, uh, six yards. Okay. So, and, and less and and an a lactic to me is going to be less than 6.5 seconds. Okay. So we looked at those things and him jumping on top of a box, but then stepping down and we started with just really low boxes, but his, his jump on top of the box is now 18 inches at 82. I'm pretty proud of that, but we stepped down. That's the, that can be some of the differences we look at. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can hold another podcast. We definitely could talk about that. I'd be excited to, because I think there are some really important principles there, but if you go back to that jump rope part, I'll finish with this. I'm by the way, famous for saying I'll finish with this and 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 I go around and around, but I'll finish with this is that when I see that that athlete is doing 20 seconds at overspeed faster than they can do for a minute, you see that the feet start to pair up. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's like hill work is speed work in, disi- in disguise. It's kind of like that where your body wants to be more efficient. You don't, you want to be a stiff spring. You want to have those nice, uh, you know, that, that centigration, if you will, through the entire body, your shoulders, by the way, have to remain stable the faster you go. Um, so that jump rope goes clean over your head as well. So a lot of people tripping up on a jump rope, they're just saying, oh yeah, it's my feet. Well, it could, you, you look at the top of the jump rope, it could be coming because your shoulders mm-hmm. are not actually right. And your obliques and uh, all of that has to tie in. So it's one of my favorite uh, test to do, but what I follow through with is actually going to overspeed for say 20 second intervals. So just some ideas on that, but yeah, we could, I could do a whole nother podcast on how we do that. We, well, now that you've teased them with that idea, Matt, we most definitely have to come back and uh, talk because I've got a growing number of older folks who are asking me about, should I still be doing hit training and should I still be doing strength training and should I eat less of this? So, uh, I think you've committed yourself to another podcast inadvertently, my friend there. <laughs> be an honor, be an honor. 
Okay, listen, Matt Pendola from the Pendola Project. Um, thank you so much for being here. It's been fascinating. It's been interesting. It's been educational. I've loved every minute of it. Uh, really appreciate time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Can I throw a quick offer to everybody, if you don't mind? Sure, sure. Please do. So, yeah, if you do get run form, um, and this is this is going to be on the Pendola Project uh, site, but if you do get that, there's uh, another program called Triathlon Strength. So I will give you that Triathlon Strength program in addition to the Run Form program. So you have it when you need it. And so uh, that I will include in that package. And what I would ask you to do is use the code MAT10. Okay, so that's M-A-T-T-10. And uh, MAT is in capital letters. And so once once you do that, um, and I get that order from you, I'll include that um, triathlon strength program in there as well, which is an in season program. Great, that's very generous of you, Matt. Thank you very much. We'll we'll definitely make a note of that in the show notes, and I will point everybody to it um, as well. So once again, thank you for being here, and I look forward to catching up in our next podcast. Simon, thank you. Thank you again to Matt for being my guest on the show this week. To make sure you don't miss any one of my episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and click subscribe. And while you're there, and if you have time, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please keep in mind our newly announced partnership with Precision Fuel and Hydration, which, because you are a regular listener, will get you a 15% discount on your first order. Going forward you'll regularly hear Andy Blow, the founder, or one of his colleagues on the show, sharing some of their latest insights or answering your questions. And on this last point, if you have a sports nutrition question that you would like answering, please send it in to me via Beth at thetriathloncoach.com and we will get back to you with an answer, the best of which will be aired on this show. Please make sure you check out all of the show notes for links to every one of those items that I've mentioned above. And that's it for now. Thank you for being here. And I will see you on the next episode.